There is enough evidence and data that we have collected over the last many years that shows that purpose and empathy make for more profitable enterprises, they make for higher performance, they make for more motivated people, they make for less attrition. There's all kinds of stuff coming out in terms of data. And I think it's time we recognized it. Welcome to the latest episode of Focus Talks on Investec Focus Radio, a series of candid conversations with leaders, innovators, and change makers. That was Sudanshu Palsule, educator, philosopher, and author. Sudanshu teaches at Duke University and is a fellow at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainable Leadership. His work on transformative leadership, informed by neurology, psychology, philosophy, and even quantum physics, is highly sought after. So I'm thrilled he's joined us to chat about purpose-driven organizations and leading in complexity. I'm Leslie Ann Gatter, Global Head of People and Organization at Investec. Thank you for joining us, Sudanshu. The book I've been reading over and over again is Rehumanizing Leadership. So maybe we, we start there and talk about what does it take to rehumanize leadership in the 21st century, in the context of organizations that have had to move uh, and been compelled to move from an extremely mechanistic way of functioning uh, and industrial revolution driven to an age of complexity where so much is just unknown and the ability to adapt is challenging all of us every day. Thank you, Les. That's a, it's an important question and I think it forms the, precisely forms the context around which the book got written. Uh, I was, I've been getting concerned about the two things that you brought up, one being the tail end of the industrial revolution and the mechanistic way in which we created our organizations, which were fit, fit for purpose at one time, but are no longer relevant in a fast moving, networked, digital world that we are in right now. And secondly, uh, the pace at which AI and machine learning is taking over the world. And it's almost like we are transiting in a hurry from an industrial age into an age of AI and machine learning. I spent a lot of time with experts in the field of psychology and organizational behavior and other such areas. And I think it became eminently clear in our conversations that the future has got to be human. The future has got to be one in which we are able to become more human than we are right now, which sounds like a bit of a paradox because that's what we are meant to be. But in the context that you described, we were anything but that. There's no doubt that AI is gonna do our work cheaper, better, and faster. So anything that is routine, anything that is run of the mill is likely to be automated in the very near future. And that poses a challenge for us as human beings. I mean, how do we climb up to the next level of the value chain? How do we build value in a way that is uniquely coming from a human perspective? And I believe that the future will be human, which is ironic in an age where uh, AI and machine learning are really taking center stage. So for me, rehumanizing leadership, as you rightly pointed out, is the task of dignifying, A, the relationships we have with each other as human beings, 
Two, the relationship we bring into our workplaces. And three, the role of leaders. I love the idea that the world becomes more human in the context of, of the onslaught of AI. So much of what we read and hear about is that we are utterly obliterated or replaced as human beings by the tech, by the AI, by the robots, uh, in a kind of you know, mythical, iconic movie we, we disappear. But your, your narrative and what you believe about the future is actually a compelling call on all of us to step up into who we are meant to be, a very humanitarian approach. Uh, so so I, I love the hope that it gives. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit around why, why, why will we be more human? The idea that we'll get more dignified uh, is so interesting. And maybe we can lead into that and talk about empathy. Thank you. I think that's a great segue into a great topic of empathy. And before I get there, let me just point out the reasons why we, I feel that the return to being human is such a compelling need. And if you take a look at the last 150 years approximately, uh, we've gone through what I call the three great separations. And one is the separation from nature. Uh, we somehow, uh, through the industrial age, uh, just acted on this planet as though we have nothing to do with what is out there. And our job was to tame nature and plunder it so that it becomes suitable for human you know, habitation. So that's number one. Number two is the uh, separation from ourselves, our deepest selves. Uh, it's almost as if um, we became uh, caricatures of who we really are meant to be, and we didn't turn up in the, to the best of our ability. And I think that big separation is an important one. And thirdly, I think it's the separation of thought and emotion, which we uh, just uh, created from a very theoretical perspective in the West, and then it became the prevailing uh, assumption all through the world that thought is king. As long as we are rational in our thinking and as long as we plan everything and we've got the right strategy, everything is going to be fine. The fact is, as we are discovering more and more in neurology, thoughts cannot exist without feelings. Mm. And it's that world of feeling that is so important that brings us back to who we really are. And that leads me on to the next question that you asked yeah. me, which is about empathy, yeah. which is that profound faculty that we carry inside us as human beings, which allows us to relate to another, to understand another, and more importantly, to imagine what it would feel like to be in that other person's shoes. This is what we call empathy. And there must have been a reason why nature intended empathy to be one of the big resources in the human brain, because that's what kept us alive in the hostile environment that we grew up in. But from a 21st century perspective, to me, it is that quality that is truly going to unleash the human in us, mm. where we truly understand the value of empathy, uh, not, to, not just towards each other, but also towards the environment in which we operate. It's such a huge task to almost return to who we are who we were always supposed to, to be. And the, the, the dualism of having split off rationality from affect and emotion has actually caused us so much pain. So how do we inculcate empathy back into humanity and importantly back into organizational life? So I see empathy as the other side of purpose. Um, in fact, purpose and empathy go hand in hand. Uh, purpose is the volitional choice we make to have 
a compass that points towards north, that gives us a sense of direction. It, it provides you with the reason to get up in the morning and uh, feel enthused about what you want to get done. But purpose without empathy is it lacks in something substantial. I mean, you can have despotic leaders in the world who completely lack in empathy, but they have a high sense of purpose. Yes. And we've seen brutal examples of such people over history. Empathy to me is a demonstration of the fact that we care. We don't use that word too often in organizational life, but we do understand it when we meet leaders who truly care, care for the organization, care for their people, care for their clients, for their customers, society at large, and for the sheer work that we are privileged to do as a group of people. When you see that, you recognize it, it's there. Mm -hmm. We all have an understanding of that mechanism of caring. And I think it is important for us to be a lot more explicit about it, to do it more purposefully. Um, the other element about empathy is that it gets better as we start practicing it more. Um, we are all born with a potential for empathy, but not everyone develops it to the fullest of our abilities, thanks to our circumstances, the you know what we grow, you know how we grow up, and all those things. But to me, organizations and leadership do provide an incredible opportunity for us to develop that empathy. So I would rate that as one of the most important resources for the 21st century. And here's one more thing, Les, that I think empathy is rather good at. We have become over-dependent on market analytics, surveys, you know, all the so-called rational mechanisms for collecting data and customer insights and client insights. I think empathy is a, an incredible tool for us to understand what is really happening out there? What do people really want? And maybe even pick up the weak signals before they get too strong. So it does give you a, a very important competitive advantage. So that's the other side of empathy that I think we can focus on. So then empathy in that context actually becomes commercial. It's not about the organization developing the soft, the soft, you know, um, soft side and, in the, and that there can be a split between what's profitable and what's soft and caring, and then profit can trump being soft and caring when the chips are down. But rather, empathy itself, purpose, and empathy together are commercial and profitable in your model. Well, remarkably so, absolutely. In fact, I mean, it, people like us who are in the work of developing people at organizations, I think we always, we kind of cringe a little bit when we hear this hard and soft thing, isn't it? I mean, it's almost like, um, the soft is an after, you know, it's like an afterthought that once you've got all your, everything else is in place, then we can develop our people and that's the soft side. On the contrary, I think there is a, if you want to use the terminology, there is a hard edge to purpose and empathy. And the hard edge is commercial, it is strategic, it is about using our resources wisely. And there is enough evidence and data that we have collected over the last many years that shows that purpose and empathy make for more profitable enterprises, they make for higher performance, they make for more motivated people, they make for less attrition. There's all kinds of stuff coming out in terms of data. And I think it's time we recognized it. Yeah. Can you tell us about an organization either that you, you, know, you, know, you know of well and worked with, and maybe you can't name them, uh, if you have, or, or that, that, you know, that you've studied, uh, that really has used purpose 
and empathy in that combination to, to greater claim and, and profitability? Sure. I mean, there are plenty. And I think uh, uh, I'm, I'm currently working with Hugh Les in Investec, which is truly one of those remarkable organizations. But if you want me to name a few outside, there is a pharmaceutical company I work with, which jumped into production of vaccines during the pandemic. They were the first ones to put their hand up and say, we're going to do it. They did not have vaccine production was not their business. They have never made a single vaccine in their lives. All right. That was not their core competence. And yet, because they were in the medical field, because there was a, it was a pharmaceutical company, and because they cared, they went into vaccine production. And it was a not-for-profit initiative. It was not meant to make money. It was meant to save lives. And to me, that is a remarkable story of a large pharma company uh, which jumped into this uh, just because they cared. There are examples that abound of uh, clothing companies that just bring, it, bring things down to two lines of clothing because they say, we care for the planet. Here's what we're going to make for you. It's great quality. It is sustainable. And we are just going to reduce on the so-called fast fashion that actually consumes so much of energy. There's no dearth of examples. Yeah. But because the other side... The other stories, the stories, the doom and gloom stories, the stories of greed and stories of avarice and, uh, you know, unbridled capitalism, because they take center stage, we often forget that there are incredible stories around us. Mm. And they shine such a light on how we can all be part of something so much bigger than ourselves. I think there are few people who are not attracted to uh, a Frankel type idea of will to meaning, that every day your life and your work life and where we spend so much of our time can be imbued with so much more that you can be part of something that feels like it's you know, taking the world to somewhere better and that you can, what you found, you will leave in so much of a better place uh, as you walk away from it. So from a human side and a leadership point of view, what happens to people in organizations uh, that, that are led by leaders who are humanized around purpose and empathy? Something shifted during the pandemic and after the pandemic. And um, people have just become a lot more conscious about their lives, mm. uh, about the need for what we call the work-life balance, about not wanting to get back to that drudgerous robotic life again. And they are starting to make choices. They are starting to say, no, I will not do this again. And that's good. You know, the, the debate that I often hear in places in, like in the UK or in the US, not so much in South Africa or other parts, but definitely in European contexts or US and the UK, how do we get people back into the office? And so we are now into whether it should be a three-day week and should we make that a statute? It should be a... And to me, that's the wrong thing we are pursuing. It's not about bringing people back into the office. It's about making the office a meaningful place that people want to come back to. Right. That they must want to come back. They must, or it doesn't even have to be the office anymore. It can be any context as long as we create the conditions for meaningful work. We've talked about this before. Human beings are meaning makers. And you quoted Viktor Frankl's great work about search for meaning. And we are perpetually in search of meaning. From the morning till the evening goes down to every rank. Even the person putting papers into a photocopying machine wants to do meaningful work. And our job as leaders is to create the conditions for them. And when we do that, we are doing an extraordinary level of service to humanity. 
Can you imagine the privilege you have of uh, having teams of people in companies where you create conditions for meaningful work? This is the most incredible charitable work that you can do. Mm. But we don't pay attention to it. We, we, are, we are just so consumed by the transactional quality of mm. the work we do that we forget this element to it. I'm so glad you brought this point up. The fact that we have gone through the pandemic and that people are now demanding more work-life balance is a good thing. It can only get better. Yeah. And I think it's shown that, that some of the ideas we had, which were such binary ideas, the idea that, that things can be hard and soft, you know, and they one or the other only. Uh, the idea that, um, that, that there's something like, like work and life are different are different things. I think the pandemic changed all that and really revealed the complexity of how actually intertwined we live and that if we can embrace that complexity rather than just trying to make things mutually exclusive, we can actually live so much better. Like one of my experiences of the pandemic was that work and life became truly one. Like my home and my work was in one place uh, in a lockdown and everything became enmeshed and intertwined. Um, and while I personally have this, this huge you know, affinity to being in an office and having the clarity of where I am around work, the, the letting go of trying to achieve a balance yes. between these two things and making them binary has been such a release, actually. It's just changed everything. And I think it's changed it for the better. I know we are frustrated at seeing empty offices in the cities and wondering what's going to happen to real estate price and what are we going to do about all this. But it's it's... It's something we'll have to go through. And I think it's, uh, it's allowing us to rediscover a new dimension to right. being human again. But the office could still have a place, and we, we don't have to talk about this only, but the office could still have a place in the context of a loftier goal, yes. which is making work meaningful. Yes. And that the reason we come together has such a, a compelling narrative to it. It's a meaningful narrative, that it's not about having you physically in a location. We don't need you to, to take up a desk and chair. We need you to be somebody, fulfill a task and an ask uh, in, in the place where we do things together. Precisely, precisely. Yeah. So in, in this complex world uh, that, that requires us to become so much more human, what is the leadership task now? Maybe what, maybe what was it and what is it now? The way we define work, it was you, you treat work as a unit that can be broken up into tasks and you allocate tasks to people, supervise them, make sure they perform to the best of their abilities, incentivize them here and there with a few things and get the best out of it. That was the definition of work. But when work itself becomes complex, interdependent, when we are operating in a world where complexity is not just, not just around us, it's accelerating to a point where you have no idea what's coming around the corner. This cannot be the way in which we do our work. There is room for creativity, imagination, collaboration, the ability to look around corners, the ability to experiment and innovate. And when you get into that context, leadership is about creating an environment in which we help people bring out the best in themselves. And our job as leaders is to simply get out of the way and make things easier for people uh, rather than create obstacles and impediments and introduce more process and more procedures and more bureaucracy that holds everything down. I think that's the ask of leadership. I use the word dignity because dignity is the opposite 
of devalue. When people feel devalued, they don't give their best. When people feel dignified, they turn up to the best of their abilities. And I think that's our role as leaders in the context that you're talking about. Yeah. Can we talk about how purpose is different from strategy or different from vision? And then an organization says, I've got a mission, I've got a vision. Yeah. But, but this is something distinct and, and different. Yes. And so let, let, let's clarify that. Uh, let's parse it a little bit. I think for me, um, leaders basically own four fundamental questions. The first question is, why do we exist? And that to me is all about purpose. Mm -hmm. Why do we exist? If we didn't exist tomorrow, what would the world look like? So when, when we talk about creating enduring worth, and that's the reason why we exist, that provides that powerful place from where everything begins. I almost see that as the source of a great river somewhere up in the mountains, which, you know, it's a, it's a spring that from where the river emerges. Once we've got an understanding of that very closely on its heels comes the next question, what do we really care about? Mm. And those are our values. So we've done the purpose, we've done the values. Once we've got those in place, then we come to the next question that we must own as leaders, which is, what are the choices we must now make? And that's really what a vision is all about. It's about where do you want to go? Where do you want to look? Uh, how far can you look into the future? Uh, that provides direction and all that. And, and thirdly, so how do we do this? And that's what gives you the strategy. So you've got those four steps nicely laid out. It's almost like an architecture. Now, if you, if you were to jump into strategy, which is how do we get this done, without paying attention to the other three, it's almost like you're building a house with no foundations. Mm. And it's always going to be buffeted by the winds and the elements because it's not going to be strong enough. Can we talk a little bit about complexity? I just wanted to say, I think people shy away from the idea of complexity and our world in this mechanistic industrial revolution type setting seeks to simplify everything everything we can and you you have such a, a beautiful analogy around you know lines straight lines so maybe we you could you could describe that a little bit for our audience around um, some of how you you've spoken about nature as as complex and our pursuit of the straight line as as maybe a simple but unhelpful endeavor sure I'd love to talk about that so it, the way I look at it, complexity is not something to be afraid of. We've just made it into some kind of a bogey uh, in the last 15 or 20 years where everything is now complex. Everything has got to be, and, and, and then it's <laughs> interestingly set up uh, another industry out there uh, in the consulting world where now they show you how to simplify everything. Mm. So simplification is now a product that you can go and buy. It makes me laugh. Complexity has been around with us ever since the birth of time. We are complex. Our bodies are complex. Uh, you know, for example, yeah, the food that you digest after you eat a meal is not you digesting it. It's the millions of bacteria and the microbes that live in your gut that are doing the job for you. How did they get in there? What's the relationship between them and your body? We live 
in a complex body. Our minds are complex. Our families are complex groupings of people where there are emotions, feelings. Everything around is complex. But the most complex structure of all that we have been surrounded by from the beginning is nature. And I love to always talk about how in nature, things don't end at their boundaries. They begin at their boundaries. Leaves begin at their boundaries because that's where they develop a relationship to the other parts in nature, including the sun. If it weren't for complexity, life would come to a standstill. Yeah. If it weren't for the fact that we inhabit complex mind-body systems, we would die. So the point is not to talk about, about complexity as though it was something to be afraid of, but to try and understand it. Now, what comes in the way, and this is what you asked me to talk about, what comes in the way is our love affair with straight lines, which was a very convenient thing that we practice in the 20th century. Uh, I talk about how, as a scientist, I would routinely fall into the trap of linearizing complex equations so that you could just work with them a lot more easier, right? Uh, financial people, economists, love straight lines because it gives you an idea of predictability and control. Uh, I also talk about how we carved up continents in the world in the colonial times by using straight lines. So you look at the continent of Africa and see all those straight lines. I mean, the, the last thing that Africa is all about is straight lines, and yet you see them on the map. The time has come for us to actually understand the limitations of the straight line and go back to embracing complexity in its fullest form. Mm. And once we start doing that, you begin to understand ways of navigating around it, ways of understanding it, ways of working with it. And to me, leadership in a complex 21st century is about guiding the tide rather than trying to control things so that we can get a foothold in something else. So I think that's where I'm coming from in terms of navigating complexity. Yeah. It's about guiding the tide. So can I ask you a little bit lastly, just about yourself, please? Will you tell us where you grew up uh, and how you came to become a philosopher and an author as you are, and, and so lyrical and, and a true poet, um, but you started off somewhere far away from where we are today. I began my life as as a scientist. Um, I taught uh, undergrad and grad physics for some time until I realized that the real work I wanted to do was about helping people um, find themselves. As I started developing that area of work more and more, I realized that the place that I could really apply to is the place of leadership because that's where it's on full display. Mm -hmm. And because leadership to me is about two things. It's about who you are and how you show up. If I can truly understand who I am and if I can help others understand who they are and then bring that to bear in their relationships with others, it changes not just the way they lead, it changes and transforms lives around them. I often tell people I work with in organizations, like people like yourselves, you underestimate the impact that you have on your people, on the world around you. You know, you just say, oh, it's, I'm just doing a manager's job or I'm a senior leader in a company. No, you're not. You actually have an impact on people's lives. Uh, I say this very often to people. Uh, they, they talk about you at their dining tables. Their kids know your names. There are stories around you that get circulated and told 
you are creating a legacy right now for yourself whether you like it or not. I'm a bit of a maverick in the sense um, you find poetic influences and you find philosophical influences and of course the world of science but I try and bring all that together to to help people unlock something in themselves. It's almost like I have this childlike imaginative idea that I hold I, I have a key that I can give you that if you use it um, you can truly unlock parts of yourself that are beautiful mm. and powerful and impactful and that we don't have to just be shadows of ourselves restricted by ourselves by our stories that we carry that we can write new stories for ourselves and truly write the next chapters of our lives I'm getting carried away now when you ask me that question. But that's truly what I want to bring into the world of leadership. And as I get older, I'm, to be honest, less and less concerned about whether businesses become more profitable. I'm, I'm, I, yes, that is a good byproduct to have, because if you didn't have profit, you wouldn't be doing what you do. But to me, it is more about, can we create workplaces? Can we create organizations where we truly humanize? Yeah. Our, ourselves and our relationships with others. So that's what I'm doing right now. I love it. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's talk, there's plenty more where that came from. Conversations with the likes of Dr. Kim Tan, Lillian Barnard, and Sir Richard Branson. Just scroll through Investex Focus Radio. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Bank Limited, an authorized financial services provider and registered credit provider.